illustrate Ezra chapter 4. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Bishlam, Mithradeth, Tabil, and the rest of his associates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. The letter was written in Aramaic script and in the Aramaic language. Rahum, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes. The king as follows. Rahum, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, together with the rest of their associates, to judges, officials, and administrators over the people from Persia, Uruk, and Babylon, the Elamites of Susa, and the other people whom the great and honorable <clears throat> Ashurbanipal deported and settled in the, well, in the city of Samaria and elsewhere in Trans-Euphrates. This is a copy of the letter they sent him to King Artaxerxes from your servants in Trans-Euphrates. The king should know that the people who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid, and eventually the royal revenues will suffer. Now, since we are under obligation to the palace, and it's not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we are sending this message to inform the king, so that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. In these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, a place with a long history of sedition. That is why this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if the city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in Trans-Euphrates. The king sent this reply to Rahum, the commanding officer, Shimshai, the secretary, and the rest of their associates living in Samaria and elsewhere in Trans-Euphrates. Greetings. The letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence. I issued an order and a search was made and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of Trans-Euphrates, and taxes, tribute, and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop work, so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? As soon as a copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rahun and Shimshai, the secretary and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. Thus, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Ido, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Josedek, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At that time, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bozanai and their associates went to them and asked, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and to finish it? They also asked, what are the names of those who are constructing this building? 
But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews. And they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his written reply be received. Great. Before we dive in, let me, let me pray. Um, there's a lot in this passage. Let me pray and ask for God's help to show us um, why this is here and how it helps us today. Let's pray together. Father, we've just been singing of um, how great you are in your faithfulness to your people, how your promises remain true throughout the ages, how they stand true today in Christ Jesus. Father, that is true here. Even in the face of opposition, your promise stands true. You are ever faithful. Your eye is over your people. Father, help us to see that this afternoon. Help us, particularly if you are facing opposition in the world today, may we be encouraged to know that your eye is over your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want you to meet someone called Li Chengju. She's now almost 39. She lives in Chengdu in Sichuan in China. If you know Chinese food, Sichuan food is like the spicy stuff. Really tasty, by the way. In 2019, at the age of 34, she was arrested by the government police and inter interrogated. She was told to renounce her faith, her church, her pastor, or face consequences. She refused. She ended up in detention for days and weeks, separated from her husband and her family. That's out in China. I want you to meet Dominic Muir. 22nd of April, 2020, headed to a local town center in Somerset. He sang Amazing Grace, a really well-known hymn, and started preaching from John 3.16, probably one of the most famous passages in the Bible. He shared his testimony, and he was told by the police officer to move. Within a few minutes, that officer returned, grabbed him off the truck, and forced him to stop. I want you to meet Oluwole Elisani, 2019, a guy who stood outside Southgate Station in North London, end of the Piccadilly Line. This was actually when we were living up there. I was studying theology up, up in that way, and he was just down the road, standing there just preaching the gospel, telling people, look, Jesus is returning, and you need to come back to him. Police came saying, look, nobody wants to listen to you. But he carried on. He ended up being arrested. His Bible was confiscated. We've moved from China to Somerset to London. These are stories, just a few years, like the last few years around us, of Christians who have stood for Christ, but have faced strong opposition. These stories can make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Surely there should be freedom of speech. It's quite a Western concept. But that is true. Surely there should be. But I wonder if there's a deeper fear in our hearts as we hear those stories. Because as Christians, we're starting to feel that more and more, we're starting to face this sort of opposition. As time ticks by, as the culture shifts, I think this is becoming more of a reality for many of us. And that is what Ezra 4 is trying to show us and help us understand this afternoon. That as Christians, as we do God's work, as we live for Christ, we will face opposition. So what are we to do? If you haven't been with us, let me, let me just quickly remind you where we've got to in the book of Ezra. Chapter 1, King Cyrus, the great king of Persia, was commissioned by God himself to say, look, send the Israelites back to Jerusalem so that they can rebuild my temple. And so the people have since returned and they started rebuilding the temple. We saw this last week. They started building it inside out. They started with the altar to make sacrifice. 
to get their relationship right with God so they could start in worship and then they started laying the foundations of their temple. It was a joyous moment. So far up to this point then, everything's been pretty positive, pretty hopeful. We're back in the promised land. The foundations are laid. The altar is smoking. They didn't quite have 3D imaging, but I'm sure they could start picturing the image of the pillars and the roof of the temple. We're almost there. Of our rebuild, God will dwell with us once again. But this afternoon, we're going to see challenge. The rebuilding of God's temple isn't plain sailing. It's not easy. In fact, here's the reality. When you take part in God's work of building his temple, of his kingdom, you will face opposition. That is true for us as Christians today. As we live out our faith, as we live for God and do his work, we will face opposition. And this passage is is long. I just want to show you three really simple things from it. Here's the first thing. This opposition will come now and in the future. It will come now and in the future. Did you notice as I read that passage, there were a lot of different kings that were mentioned. Cyrus, Darius, Xerxes, Artaxerxes. Who's reigning? What is happening? So to help us, I've actually brought a timeline. If you click on the next slide, there we go. Here's a timeline. So I'll give you a rough idea of where we are. So here's King David. 1000 BC was when King David was there. And then about 500 years later, Jerusalem is sacked. Okay, so the temple is destroyed by the Assyrians. And then you get King Cyrus, the guy I mentioned, who in chapter 1 gives that great decree and says, look, you guys go back from exile and rebuild the temple. So that's 536 BC. Then you get after him a king called Cambyses. He's not mentioned in the Bible. Then you get Darius, who's mentioned here. In Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, and verse 24 and beyond. Because that's the Darius around this period of time in Ezra where we are at. But then you get these two other people, Xerxes and Artaxerxes. Now, if, you, if you're familiar with the book of Esther, Xerxes, that's Esther Xerxes, that guy. The guy who takes Esther to be his wife. He comes a bit later after Darius, and then after him comes Artaxerxes. That's the guy you read, we heard a lot about in the middle of chapter 4 and who we'll meet later on in Ezra chapter 7 and in Nehemiah as well, if you read that. Okay, that's a rough timeline. And you can see the kings are coming in different periods, and this writer has merged them together. What is he doing? So if you look at chapter 4 now, do you see verses 1 to 5 are all about Darius' time? And then verses 6 to 23 are all about the time of Xerxes and Artaxerxes, kind of 100 years later. But what do you see in both those periods? There is opposition. Here's something simple that the writer is trying to get us to see. The people of God will face opposition now and in the future. Whenever the people of God take part in building up God's temple, they will face opposition. That is true for us today. Because God continues his building project. It's no longer in the terms of a physical temple in Jerusalem that is bound by time and place. Do you remember when Jesus came and he walked this earth? He said something outrageous. He looked at the temple and he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to destroy this physical temple and rebuild it in three days. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? But what Jesus wanted to show was God's temple was more expansive than this temple that they saw. The promise to Abraham made thousands of years ago was for all nations to be gathered and blessed by God himself. Jesus came to show how God's kingdom, his rule, and his blessing for his people was expansive, not bound by time and place. The temple in Ezra's time, it was a shadow of the rebuild project that God was doing. 
It was to show that God's promise is still very much intact. And his temple symbolized his presence is coming to gather his people in Jerusalem. But now in Christ, we live in an era of a new spiritual temple where God is present with his people all around the world by his spirit from China to Somerset to London. And today that is the church. Not the building, you'll be glad to hear. If you've been with us at the globe, we've moved around kind of 15 buildings in the last eight years. But it's not about the building. It's the gathered people of God. We are God's temple today. 1 Peter 2, Peter makes it clear that we are all called living stones, each one of us. Who likes Lego? There we go. I love Lego. Here's the inner man child in me. I carry Lego around in my pocket. Yeah, there's a little, little, little Lego brick. Now, when you look at this Lego brick, it's completely lifeless, right? And if you look at a pile of Lego, it's pretty ugly. They're pretty dangerous. If you leave them on the floor, man, it's lethal. Ever stepped on one? My kids do it sometimes. Man, they're Duplo as well. It's bigger. But, but when you start giving these Lego bricks life, and you start putting them to work, when you activate them, these lifeless doll bricks can turn into something spectacular. Some people have seen this before. I got this for Christmas a couple of years ago. There we go. Look at that. That's nice, isn't it? It took me ages to do this. But so, my inner man child. But that is what, when you give these Lego bricks life, it builds and creates something amazing, beautiful. Now, I know it's not a perfect illustration. But we today are like this. We are living stones coming into a temple that is magnificent, that displays God's glory. But here's the thing. When we engage in building up other brothers and sisters, when Christians tell people about Christ and call them to commit their lives to him, as we join together in God's building project, there will be opposition. You can see that throughout the history of the church. And so from there, there's an implication for us in this passage. Did you notice, when do, people, when do, when do the people of God face opposition in chapter 4? When they're taking part in building God's temple. There is a moment, I don't know if you noticed, there's a moment when they stop. Look at verse 24. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill in the, until the second year of the reign of Darius. That is the one time they stop building. And what happens? The opposition is happy. But then in chapter 5, five as soon as they start rebuilding again, the opposition is back straight away. So here's the implication, here's a question, here's a challenge for us. For those of us who call ourselves Christians, are you facing opposition in your walk today? Are you facing opposition in your walk today? Now, I'm not saying we need to experience this all the time. I'm not saying go around and start picking fights. There's no need for that. But as we live for Christ, as we stand for him, as we build God's temple today and make it clear that I live as a living stone that lives and, and follows Christ, do we face opposition? As we call others around us, look, come, come and be a living stone to see one of the greatest buildings we will ever see built in the history of humanity. Come and be one of those stones. Do we face opposition? It's not going to happen all the time, but it will happen. There will be resistance, sometimes even hostility. But do we face opposition? If you've never faced it, or if you 
haven't faced it for a long time, then it's worth asking that question. Why, why am I not? Am I clear? Are we being clear to others that we live as part of God's great building project? Do we vocalize to our friends, our colleagues, and neighbors to show them that, that we, with our lives, we live as living stones of Jesus? I was challenged by this. I'm not sure the last time I've actually faced heavy opposition. And the question then becomes, what if it is because we've stopped building? Have we stopped taking part in God's great building project? And building up of God's temple, his church today, are we withdrawing? Have we stopped telling others about the beauty of Christ and his church? Have we detached ourselves and become a lifeless Lego brick that's just shoved back into the box? It's worth asking that question because as Christians, Ezra 4 is clear, we will face opposition now and in the future. But here's the flip side to this. So whenever you do face opposition, be encouraged. Because that most likely means that you are walking with God. That you are living for him. That you are taking part in being a living stone. That you're making it known that you are building God's temple today. That's the first thing to see. Whenever we do God's work to build his temple, we will face opposition. I know this is hard stuff, but I just want you to see what's in the Bible. But here's the second thing. As opposition comes, stand firm against friendly foes. Stand firm against friendly foes. Does everyone know the game of Mafia? Anyone played it? If you don't know it, you basically sit in a big circle with your friends, and then some of them are mafia, and they're basically out to kill you. In the middle of the night, they're just going to kill you. And so you as villagers, as innocent people, have to try and suss out who the mafia are. And you're chatting, and they're like, oh, we're on the same side, we're working towards the same goal. It's like, really? And you sit there, everyone's smiling at you, and you know one of them, few of them are mafia. And so to successfully guard the village, it's so important that you stand firm against those who are so-called friends. I mean, your friends afterwards, right? It's just in the game. But... But look at what's going on here. Did you read the first few verses in chapter 4? Did you think that Zerubbabel and Joshua and the leaders were being a bit harsh? At first glance, it seems that way. There are these people who turn up and they're in the region. They say, look, let's help you build. Because like you, we seek your God. We've been sacrificing to him. We just want to help. What's wrong with that? Surely that's a good thing. See, we live in a culture today that is very much about inclusivity about getting along as much as possible. And when somebody comes and says, hey, I'm on your side and I want to help, that is one of the best things you could hear, surely. And so this makes for slightly uncomfortable reading as you read it, because what they're doing seems to be really exclusive, overly harsh and dismissive. But here's the problem. They might seem like they are friends. They might sound like they are friends, but they really aren't. They are friendly foes. See that in verse 1, when the enemies of Judah, clearly they're the enemies of the people of God. That's another reason why this writer has merged those two periods of history together. Because he's saying, look, the same people then in Darius' reign, still causing you issues in Artaxerxes' reign. You think they were friends then? They really aren't. Just look at the way they treat you. So the question then becomes, okay, who are these people? What are these people really like? Flick over to Ezra chapter 4, verse 9 to 10. You see it here, verse 10. 
it gives a list of people in verse 9. And the other people whom the great and honorable, that name I can't pronounce, deported and settled in the city of where? Samaria. Now, you might have heard of the story of the Good Samaritan in the New Testament. Or the Samaritan woman at the well who was there, who meets with Jesus. Same place, same region, Samaria. Just to help you understand what's going on, Samaria was actually part of the promised land. It belonged to the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. They were to the north of Jerusalem. And when Israel had been carried off to exile, the king of Assyria, he basically deported a load of people to come back to this region, a mixture of people who became known as the Samaritans. And in 2 Kings 17, you get this account of what these people are really like. And the key thing you see in that passage is this. The Samaritans, they are idol worshippers. There's this fascinating account. As these people, these Samaritans, live in this promised land, they start worshipping their idols. And God, God of the Bible, he sends these lions in among them, and he starts killing some of them as a warning. The Assyrian king hears about this, so what does he do? He sends an Israelite priest to go back and teach them who the true God is. That is why they turn up here and say to Ezra, hey, look, to Zerubbabel, we, we worship the same God. But you carry on reading 2 Kings 17. Though they worshipped God in, in some degree, they also carried on worshipping all the other idols. In reality, they don't truly worship the God of the Bible at all. If you look at their life, they don't pay attention to any of his covenants or his laws or his promises. Instead, they sort of have God, Yahweh, as one of their many other gods. The Israelites saw them as idol worshippers. They are not the true people of God. But the Samaritans, they go on to claim, no, 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 we are. They build a rival temple, and they claim that this is where the people of God worship. And ever since this time, they have been the worst of enemies, huge beef between the two people. Okay, that's a bit of history to help you understand what's going on. But do you see the issue here? Let me be clear, the issue here isn't about race or ethnicity. In fact, we're going to see that next week, how Gentiles are welcomed into worship God. But the key issue here is idolatry. It's all about the danger of compromise. Compromising on who God is and how he calls his people to live. For those who commit to idols, they are not welcome to take part in God's work. And Christians are called not to be yoked with them. Even if they worship God occasionally, even if they know some things about God, if they worship him as one God among many, if they do not see God as the one true living God over all, that is not okay. The point is this. We need to be able to draw a line in the sand. True worship of the one true God matters. It matters more than being welcoming and being inclusive that our culture so demands. What matters above all is that we are clear who God is and why we worship him. The Samaritans worship tons of idols. They are like the universalists of the day who claim that all gods are equal and that the Christian, is, is, Christian God is just one of many out there. It's that sort of mantra that you hear nowadays. You do it your way, I'll do it mine. We'll be fine, we're friends. We're going to end up in the same place. And God makes it clear that is not true. There is only one true God. We cannot and we should not worship any other. And so it's not okay to partner with people who might respect God but don't truly live for him. 
who don't really see him for who he is. Yes, we're called to engage with them. We're called to love them with the gospel, but don't partner with them. The Samaritans here are also those who don't live according to how God desires his people to live. Two Kings makes it clear that they are living lives that are compromised. I'm not talking about matters on secondary things. I'm talking here about compromising on the fundamentals of what God commands. How are we to live? It's to be clear that we live in and for Christ. No longer in the flesh, but in the spirit, which means we seek his kingdom and his righteousness and flee from sin. It's to be clear on the realities of hell, that judgment is real for those who don't come to God. It's to be clear on Jesus' virgin birth, on his actual death and his resurrection in the flesh. To be clear of his work at the cross in atoning for our sins. To be clear in how he calls us as his people into unity of worship, of community, as a new family, a new creation of God, as his church. To be clear that we should and we need to tell others about God's great love for them, shown in the sacrifice of Christ. We cannot partner with those who have compromised on who God is and what he commands. In the culture we're in today, this is hard to hear. I get it. Because there will be people who on the surface will claim to worship that same God, but in fact they do not. Who have compromised in different areas. And Ezra 4 is warning us, we need to be vigilant of that sort of opposition. That is why we try and teach the Bible faithfully every Sunday in our midweek groups. Not only because it's an act of worship and of encouragement to us, but because through it we learn how to discern who God is and what his will is. And that is exactly what the leaders here do, Zerubbabel and Joshua. They draw a clear line to say, no, we will not partner with you in building this temple. Because they are so aware of the history of the people of God compromising to people who seemed like friends. Adam and Eve compromised in the garden to a friendly snake. Joshua and the people compromised with idol-worshipping neighbors when they entered the promised land, having been freed by God. King Solomon compromised with idol worshippers in his marriages. And ever since then, it's been compromise after compromise. That got them into this mess in the first place of exile. And so they're back there from exile, and Zerubbabel and Joshua say, no, no, not this time. Now, I get this is hard for us to hear. This is a challenge for us in our culture to draw a line and not to compromise can sound aggressive, polemic. And the opposition, you see in verse 5 here, they bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans. But Ezra 4 is making it clear to us that it's important to safeguard God's people and his work through his people. So how do we do this well? How do we draw, draw distinctions well as a church, as Christians? Here's some wisdom that I've just picked up uh, that might help us. Three C's. Firstly, convictions. Let's be firm in our convictions of what we actually believe. The things that God has clearly revealed to us, we need to be firm on those things and not compromise. The second C is clarity. We need to be clear on what we believe. I'm learning this as I go on, but one of the best ways to love others is to be clear on where you stand. It isn't loving to fob people off with niceties, but to be clear. 
To be clear that you love them, but to be also be clear on the things that God says matter that may well be countercultural. The third C, I think, is really important, is charity. John Stott was a pastor up in Olsos, not too far from here. I love this phrase he gave. He said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Do you get that? Let me say that again. In essentials, in those conviction things, unity. In non-essentials, liberty, freedom. But in all things, charity. See, there is often a danger of us as Christians who are strong in their convictions and their desire to be clear that they just end up being really bullish, hostile and not gentle, condemning and not gracious. But we need to be Christ-like in how we speak of our convictions. Charity, that comes with a word that means grace. Let's be gracious, be gentle and firm. Draw our lines clearly but graciously. And let's pray that convictions, clarity, and charity will honor God first and foremost, but secondly, that it might appeal to others as they hear of the clarity of what we believe, how that shapes our lives, and they hear that with charity, maybe that might turn them to God. Here's a, here's a third and final thing. Stand firm against fearful foes. Um, it's a bit like cat. This, this next scene is a little bit like cats. Um, who, let me not ask, I'm not going to ask who likes cats. It might divide the room. Um, but I, I like cats. Cats, I find out, are they're, they're very territorial animals, right? So they, they mark out their territory, and they don't, if another cat comes in, what do they do? They're not like, ah, oh, welcome in, Slinky Malinky, no. They, what do they do? They start making cat noises. You know, you know, you know those sorts of noises? Because they want to get rid of any of those threats that come into their territory, their freedom. This is when we move into this period of Artaxerxes, so from verses 6 onwards. Here in the history of Israel, the, the temple's been rebuilt, they're rebuilding the city and the walls. God is restoring his relationship with his people. And again, these Samaritan leaders, same guys, step up and appeal to the king, stop these people building the temple and the city. Why? Because they see them as a threat because they're fearful of them. Look at verse 13. The king should know that if the city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid, and eventually the royal revenues will suffer. There's a threat to lining the pockets of the king. Verse 14, they will shame and dishonor you. It's not proper for us to see the king dishonored. We are sending this message to inform the king. They will rebel against the king. Do you see why these people feel threatened? Because it's about a clash of two kingdoms. As a temple city and the walls are all being re rebuilt, God's covenant relationship with his people is being reestablished once more. God is coming to reign and dwell with his people once again. God is coming as king over his people. And this means that the people will be loyal and bear allegiance to God, not to any other king which means that they are going to inevitably clash with this king, Artaxerxes. Their allegiance is to God and God alone. And it's like that for us today. If we take part in building God's temple today, if we take part in gathering people to God, building his church and his people, we live for the kingdom above. 
meaning that those not from that kingdom will come and oppose us. They will be fearful foes who see the church and God as a threat. And I think we're starting to see this happen around us more and more. As people claim that we in the UK are now in a post-Christian world, there's a move away from Christian belief and values. Christianity is seen more and more as a belief that dishonors and rebels against the values of our culture and our society as being countercultural. Christian beliefs are seen to be a threat to the freedoms that people want to express their own ideas, their desires, their sexuality. Christianity is seen as restrictive, dishonoring to the king of freedom and expressive individualism that is so prevalent in our culture. Christianity is seen as imposing, rebellious to our freedoms as human beings who just want to be and do whatever we want. My friends challenge me more and more about this because they clash with the two kingdoms. And again, for many of us, again, this will make us feel uncomfortable. Particularly in the backdrop of this culture where it feels so important to get along, to find unity, to be as inclusive as possible. But the Bible is making it clear that there's a reality that this opposition may well come. In Ezra's time, these enemies do everything they can to stop rebuilding the temple and the city. They write letters to the kings and authorities, speaking of how rebellious God's people were and have been. Jump on Twitter, on social media, you, you start seeing some of this stuff, of how Christians are rebellious to the values and society of the world, how we are oppressive, backward, and harmful. We're seeing some of this emerging more and more in the West right now, but only recently because we're still underpinned by a lot of Christian values historically. But speak to someone from mainland China. Speak to someone from parts of India or Nigeria. This is exactly what they face. Enemies who come to shut churches down, churches that have to go underground. People who write to governments against Christianity, saying it's of another kingdom that is rebellious. It's been going on for years for these guys. But here's the interesting thing. Do you know what the fastest growing regions for Christianity, do you know where they are? Nigeria, China, India. See, how is it that despite opposition from the early church days with the Romans all the way through the generation that the church continues to grow today? In another way, we can ask this, how do we stand firm? How do we keep going in the face of opposition through both friendly foes and fearful foes? Well, simply, I think in this passage, there are two ways to respond. The first way, as I mentioned before, is just to stop. That's what happens in Ezra 4.24. Just stop building, and the opposition will stop. That's a simple way to do it, right? But here's God's way. Here's the other way. See, the big undercurrent running through the book of Ezra is God's great covenantal promise to his people. And what God wants to show us is, look, God cannot be stopped. No human being, no human king, no matter how great they are, like great King Cyrus, can stop God's great building project because God is ever faithful to his covenant promise. You see God's desire all the way through from, Ab from Adam to Abraham to David to Ezra to us today. His desire to see more and more people from all the nations come to him to find life and joy and peace in him. That was his covenant promise. 
that he would call people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to himself and be a blessing unto them. And he doesn't want you or I to miss out on that. If you're here this afternoon and you're not a Christian, then you've got to get this. Ezra is all about God wanting to rebuild his temple so that he can dwell with his people once again. It's symbolic of what he wants into eternity, where he wants us to find rest with him in his eternal city, with God himself present among us, with us as living stones in that very temple where he is present with us for eternity. And he wants you to be a part of that. And God is going to make sure that this happens. Do you see how he does this? Look at chapter 5, verse 5. We're just going to end with this. I love this phrase. This is such an amazing picture. In all their opposition that comes as they start rebuilding again, this is what God says. But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his written reply be received. God's watchful eye is over his people. God's watchful eye, that's an expression of his special care. I've got two kids. Um, the second one, Sophie, she's not even two yet. She's just about walking. Like, you might see her sometimes tottering around. Took her to the park the other day. This girl's like brave. She's got no fear. So she starts climbing this massive cargo net. I'm like, what are you doing? And she's also a little bit stubborn. So as I try to help her, she's like, get off, get off. And she doesn't talk, so she's just, ah! She's just shouting, screaming. But what do I do? When I see her climbing that cargo net, my watchful eye is on her in case she slips. My hand is hovering underneath her bum in case she, she falls and she can't push herself up. God's watchful eye, like a father watching over his children, is over his people. He wants to make sure that he uses us in his rebuild project. That is why even when the Israelites stop building in Ezra chapter 4, God does not stop. His watchful eye is over his people. He intervenes. He reminds his people. He sends his prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, raises them up to say what? Guys, do not fear. God is with us. So keep going. In a similar way, he reminds us today. In this book, God is constantly reminding us that his watchful eye is over his people. Do not be afraid. Keep going. I am with you. My blueprint is set, so come and join me in the work. And the beautiful thing is he doesn't just speak these words, but the very word of God, the very son of God became flesh. He came to be with us. In John chapter 1, it actually says that Jesus came himself to dwell, to tabernacle among his people, to be a temple among his people. Jesus comes as the word in flesh to speak the truth to his people. He comes and proclaims the kingdom of God is near. Here is a kingdom that will rule over all. Come and join me in it. Come and join me as I build up God's temple today. As I dismantle this physical temple and rebuild it in three days by laying down my life for you. As I lay down my life, what is Jesus saying? Look, I'm going to be that cornerstone to set this all in motion. He doesn't just give us the blueprint, but he comes to be that very foundation, the cornerstone of it all. And as he does that, as he lays down his life, he is raising up living stones all around 
throughout the generations, throughout the ages, throughout the nations, that will be a part of that very temple where God dwells from now into the future. A temple no longer bound by time or place. And we are a part of that today. That is the church. From China to Somerset to London. The church that sits under God's word, that listens to the voice of Christ, that has the Holy Spirit dwelling in us individually and corporately. We are the living stones of God's temple today. And we are called to keep building. So let's keep building one another up. Let's keep encouraging each other, challenging each other to live on as living stones for Christ. And let's keep building more by going and making disciples of all the nations, telling others to come and be a living stone. And do you know what? As we do that, do you know what Jesus promised his disciples? Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And what does he promise? And I'll be with you always until the very end of the age. And that promise is true for us today. He never leaves or forsakes his people as we walk and we work with and for God. That is why they kept building in Ezra's time. His watchful eye is over them as it is for us today. Now again, we don't always feel this. But when we forget, come back to God's word and hear him speak to us and remind us, look, do not fear. Keep going because I'm with you. We may not see it happen immediately. It may be a long time that we face opposition, but know that Christ is ever present with us as we build, as we face opposition right until the end. Jesus never leaves us nor forsakes us. He is always with us. We need to wrap up. But here's a big thing for today. When we do God's work, the opposition is real. This was true for Lee Chengju, for Dominic Muir, for Oluwole, who, met, who we met at the start. And it may well be for us as well. But so is God's word. It is true. And his watchful eye is over us. So we can stand firm. We can go on building up his church today in the face of opposition. And as we do that, my prayer is that we will know more of God's presence among us today in his living stones as his temple And that through that, many more would come to know of God's great blessing upon us and upon his people. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we we know your word is good and true. And sometimes it's so challenging. And sometimes it's hard. It's hard to think as your people that, we, that you say that we will face opposition. But Father, we, we, we trust you. We trust your word. And Father, we pray to you now that in the face of opposition, we will remember that your watchful eye is over us. That you have shown us that in Christ Jesus who came, who walked with us, who watched over us, who prayed over us as he hung on the cross. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Who watched over his disciples as he promised them, I will be with you always until the very end of the age. Father, help us to remember that promise is true for us. And by your spirit, would you help us to stand firm and to continue walking with you and continuing in building your your kingdom, your church, your temple for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.